Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or of Church authorities, even when we are spot on. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ as we find greater peace in our lives. All right, Ben, so I'm really excited for this podcast. This is going to be awesome. (laughs) It is going to be awesome. Today's Come Follow Me is we are talking about Mosiah 29 through Alma 4. And I'm like, there's just so much here. And I'm like, we got 45 minutes to do all of this? I, I, how can we do all of this in 45 minutes? I don't know. Well, we'll just start and we'll stop when we're done. And <laughs> hopefully that's right. less than 45 minutes. Okay, well, let's try to do that. It's like, it's like my favorite 80s uh, cult classic. He's like... Go down the mountain really fast, and when something gets in your way, turn. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right, sounds good. Sounds good. All right, so Mosiah 29. Ben, you and I have been involved in political philosophy for 15 years, and we've been trying to get out of political philosophy for so long. And then all of a sudden, the very first podcast we come back to do is like the most politically charged like four chapters in the entire Book of Mormon. We're talking about the transition of the government. We're talking about what the new the new government's going to be like. We're talking about the problems of a new government. <laughs> for for as much as I want to get away from that discussion, it's like they keep throwing me back in. Well, I mean, there is definitely a political narrative here, but uh, as as I've read it more and more, I see this as Alma's journey into the anti-political, right? Um him into him beginning to understand really what it means to be called of God and what his calling really is. And so he really evolves here in his focus and understanding. And we see a lot about Alma that his character, that it lays a foundation for the later chapters in the book of Alma. So, yeah, absolutely. So here we, I, I love that. So we're going to start in Mosiah 29 and in here we have Mosiah as king. Now in the book of Mormon, we have this type of priest king relationship where the king is also a seer. So he's all, he's also the high priest. He's also the king. And it's the tradition of the Kings going all the way back to Nephi. This goes all the way back to second Nephi four when Nephi was made the first king. And then second Nephi five through 10 You have Jacob with this discourse where he starts off where Jacob, for me, really seems to be critiquing the people for even having a king and saying you shouldn't have a king. You know, God is supposed to be our deliverer. But then he gets into talking about Zion and the atonement. And but we see sometimes they have good kings, sometimes they don't. But then we have Benjamin, who's just an absolute phenomenal archetype of Christ. And then Benjamin's son, Mosiah, becomes the same kind of righteous man. And as he's getting to the end of his life, he realizes that he's got to turn the kingdom over to one of his sons and all of the people vote to have Aaron be their king. 
Aaron doesn't want to have anything to do with it. He's he's already recognized something that Alma's going to learn here in, within about the next five chapters, and he's out being a missionary. He's like, I don't want anything to do with this. And so finally, the kings run out of <laughs> Mosiah's run out of sons. He's like, I don't know what to do anymore. So at this point, they turn it back over to the people, and they end up with the system of judges. Is this where I'm supposed to talk? <laughs> I would. I hope you would. <laughs> so, with this system of judges, you know, even though they've changed political systems, they haven't really changed their mentality as a people. Um, and what they hoped would lead toward more peace and stability appears to lead to the opposite. They have um, quite a few issues from here on out. The Nephites at this point have had almost almost 500 years of kings from Nephi to this point. Now, there was obviously a an interruption there where Mosiah's grandfather, Mosiah the first, left and went to Zarahemla and met up with the Mulekites. Um, and we don't really have much of a history of the people there. We don't even know who the second king of the Nephite wa- Nephites was after Nephi. Um, we don't hear about another king until Mosiah the first. But the Nephites have been living with kings for almost 500 years. So Mosiah presents this opposite, or not opposite, but this alternative uh, to them. And even though they're excited about it, uh, they don't really seem to understand all of the implications. And they still end up having quite a few contentions. This is where Alma sort of goes through a, a journey, so to speak, where he is both the high priest and the chief judge. He has both of those responsibilities, and as he's called upon to execute them, he discovers that they aren't all they're cracked up to be. He's not going to accomplish what the Lord has for him to accomplish by focusing on the political, but he's going to have to focus on changing the hearts and minds of the people, which is the real problem. Yeah, it's it, one of our the realizations that you and I have talked about over the years, Ben, is that I, I so I studied political philosophy at BYU, and so I, I was reading some of the best, some of the best of the best of what the greatest minds have been able to create that we've been able to build American institutions. I like to focus more on um, the American adaptation of the Enlightenment. So I was reading the the empiricists from you know the John Locke's and the David Humes and and then how the American colonial systems had transformed those philosophies to something unique that was unique to Americana and it was my last semester at BYU when I ended up reading a book by Neil A Maxwell called the Enoch Letters where he talks about the building of Zion and after four years of being there with with political philosophy texts and then reading. Elder Maxwell's really simple primer, which you can read it in an afternoon, and I highly suggest anybody read it, and everybody read it, is that I realized that Elder Maxwell had been a political science professor right at the University of Utah, and he had been in the political world. And I started to realize that this little book about building Zion was a magnificent treatise that had identified the major themes in political philosophy to show that every political philosophy that man has created to 
do what the like the U.S. Constitution says it do, you know, to form a more perfect union and to establish dom- you know domestic tranquility and provide for the common defense. Everything that every government of man has done has eventually broken apart and, and failed in its endeavor. And Maxwell brings out all the principles that are needed to build Zion, where there is unity, where there is peace, where there is this. You know, we we could go. It's almost a negative term now, where we talk about utopia, but it's a place where. I don't think we create a utopia. I think we just finally learn how to live according to reality, that we accept reality for what it is and learn how to deal with that. But in the scriptures, they're always trying to find a way to establish peace. And it's always an external endeavor. It's always like if we have this king, then we'll be able to have this peace. Or if we have this form of government and we and we come and we adhere to this form of government, then we'll have peace. But it's always the reliance on the external and never a focus on the internal. And I think that's really where Alma begins to see his conversion because as he comes about in the very first chief, you know, the, the chief judge of the, the land as they're, as they're brought into the reign of the judges, the very first chief judge is Alma, who Ben, as you said, he is the high priest of the church. He's the, he's the prophet, as it were, for the church, but he's also now the president or the high priest of the chief judge of the land. And now he's wearing two you know, like two caps now, two hats, where he has got the power of two entirely different institutions that are governed and operate and deal with two entirely different things. And now we get to see Alma's transition in how he is going to go about dealing with the social inequalities and the persecutions and all of the things that we come along with still with society that we rely on government for. Alma's going to realize that he has the power in two hands, one of the church and one of the the government, and we're going to see where he eventually leads him with that. But at first, we end up with this really great guy who comes in uh, practicing priestcraft. And uh, this is the first time that priestcraft has been introduced, but I, I find it absolutely fascinating that uh, Nehor in Alma chapter 1 is the guy, who, that's how their whole new system of government starts is with, with priestcraft. Yeah. You know, and the the themes from Nehor or the philosophies from Nehor persist throughout the book of Alma, or they seem to haunt Alma, so to speak, for many years to come, culminating in the tragedy at Ammonihah. You know, kind of, it, you have to sort of read between the lines a little bit and and imagine yourself in in Alma's in Alma's uh, shoes for a bit and realize what he is thinking and experiencing as all this is happening and what he's coming to realize about his choices and the consequences of his choices or maybe less the consequences than what the contributions that his choices made towards events it's a very interesting type of narrative to follow as as you go through these chapters Exactly. So let's start with then. Let's start with Nehor. We got Nehor coming in. Now we're here at the reign of the judges. We don't have kings anymore. Everybody's responsible for their own righteousness, for their for their own society, right? You can't. Mosiah calls this the great inequality, where he doesn't want there to be an inequality anymore. He doesn't want to have just the kings be responsible for everything and the people largely responsible for nothing. He wants it to be more you know, have a greater equality among the people. So people are responsible for their own lives. And the first thing that comes along is this doctrine 
And Nehor in Alma chapter 1, verse 3, it says, And he had gone about among the people, talking about Nehor, preaching to them that which he termed to be the word of God, bearing down against the church and declaring unto the people that every priest and teacher ought to become popular, and they ought not to labor with their own hands, but that they ought to be supported by the people. And he testified unto the people that all mankind should be saved in the last day, and that they need not fear nor tremble, but that they might lift up their heads and rejoice, for the Lord had created all men and had redeemed all men, and in the end all men should have eternal life. And I, and I think this is really fascinating, the verse 3 and 4, because in a lot of ways I see verse 4 being actually kind of true. There's a lot, there's a lot that, uh, his, especially nowadays, there's a lot to be talked about, about how, just how far God has gone to redeem all of his children. Now we still have, you know, the, the three degrees of glory and that whole thing, but more than any other Christian sect or denomination, the, the restored gospel narrative really does allow for more people to be redeemed really than a lot of our Christian counterparts. And, but that's not really where the Book of Mormon is critiquing Nehor's false doctrines. He's really critiquing Nehor's false doctrines at this concept of making the priests popular. This is the priestcraft portion of it. It's the, the bringing along and making the, the priests popular and, and supported by the backs of the people. Almost like the old wicked kings, right? Because King Benjamin even talked about this being the, the priest king. He's like, I have not lived on the backs of the people. I have, I have worked for my own daily bread. But yet Nehor thinks the priests now should be supported by the people. And then he goes out preaching this, and he comes into conflict with Gideon, who was very instrumental with Noah. And suddenly now they get in a fight, and Nehor, this is what I think is absolutely fascinating, is that you know you've lost an argument when you have to result to violence. And that's right where Nehor, Nehor goes. is he, he gets into confrontation with Gideon. Gideon's old. He can't defend himself. They get into a sword fight. Violence ensues. Now Gideon dies. Now that's the reason why they bring him to Alma. Yeah, you know, that these are some of the same thoughts that I had as I was reading through this. There's nothing objectively wrong with the teachings of verse 4, or we could at least really frame that in a gospel narrative and, and say that, um, that that's not necessarily false doctrine. Um, I know some people would dispute that, but I, I don't think that that's where the, the real problem is. The real problem is not with verse 4, with what Nehor is teaching, the content of what he's teaching. Uh, like you said, the problem comes in when it is based upon accumulating wealth and power and gain among the people. And then to enforce that by the sword, which is what Alma critiques as well later. Um, you know, you, you kind of invoked... Godwin there where he says, uh, you know, we'd, I'd have to look up the quote. Maybe you could look up faster than me. Something like, you know, he, if he who um, could, if he could persuade me to his argument by just force of words, he would do so. But he does it by violence. And, and by that, he's not showing himself to be strong. He's showing his argument to be weak. And here we have Nehor <clears throat> who kills Gideon um, and is brought in. Uh, for this purpose. Now, we're not told here whether Gideon, you know, tried to defend himself with the sword or not. Um, it seems to me that Gideon wouldn't be just walking around with a sword, but maybe Nephites did, you know, maybe they just, maybe it was Wild West stuff. They just walked around with swords all the time. But uh, <laughs> in any Quick case... Quick draw with the sword. <laughs> in any case, the the actual implication here is that Gideon was 
was really actually bearing testimony, teaching the truth. And that upset Nihor to the point that Nihor resorted to violence. So here we have an example, at least from the words that we read in the scriptures, an example of someone who's actually a martyr, someone who died bearing testimony of the truths that they knew. What is most interesting about this is the response of the people and Alma as a representative of the people in how they respond to this. They bring Nihor in and they try him, give him a, you know, a fair trial, it seems, and decide to put him to death. Alma cites the problem with this as, as being enforcing priestcraft with the sword and saying that it, he would be, you know, this would lead to the destruction of the people. And he references the law that Mosiah gave them and the tradition of their fathers. You know, elsewhere, when Mosiah is talking, he talks about how it would be great. Um, this is back in Mosiah 29, verse 12. It says, Now it is better that a man should be judged of God than of man, for the judgments of God are always just, but the judgments of man are not always just. Therefore, if it were possible that you could have just men to be your kings who would establish the laws of God and judge this people according to his commandments, yea, if you could have done for men, you could have men for your kings who would have done even as my father Benjamin did for his people. I say unto you, if this could have always be the case, this could always be the case, then it would be expedient that you should always have kings to rule over you. So he's referencing the laws of God and if people could really judge by the laws of God. But then, that's Mosiah. But then when we get to Alma, Alma actually condemns him here in verse 14. Therefore, thou art condemned to die according to the law which has been given us by Mosiah, our last king. And it has been acknowledged by this people. Therefore, this people must abide by the law. So this is almost purely a political argument by Alma. He's saying... Look, we had a king. Everybody recognized he was the king. He gave us a law. Everybody, all the people have established this law, and we have to abide by it. And it's not, in substance, extremely different from what Nehor is saying in terms of priestcraft. Now, I'm not trying to judge Alma here or not, but he does seem to explain his actions, or the condemnation to death, in sort of a legal, positivist type of way, rather than appealing to the laws of God. And I think that causes problems later for Alma. Um, I think it he comes to a realization that the way that he went about that was maybe not the best. There might have been a better way. Yeah, I love that. It, it really shows that Alma coming along with this, as I said, he was wearing two hats, right? He had the church on one hand, he had the political system on the other. And on the political system, as an, as an officer in that, He's got to abide by the rules of what that system and not just the rules and the prescriptive rules that have been set up, but there's actually a discussion before even creating those rules that you have to have about legitimizing those rules. And and one of the discussions I know we've had, Ben, is this concept, you know, setting the Enoch letters is this concept that at every day of our lives, individually and as a society, we come to the crossroads where the two great commandments are in front of us of loving God with all of our heart, might, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And in the New Testament, when when Christ is pressed about what the, the, the two greatest commandments are, or what the greatest command is, 
he gives this response and he says, on these two hang all the law and the prophets. And it never really occurred to me until I read Maxwell's book years, years ago, that when we come to the crossroads of the two great commandments every day of our life, if we do not adhere to those two great commandments, it's in that moment that all political philosophy begins. So all governments of men, all governments, all kings, all democracies, all republics, all oligarchies, whatever, every system of government that man has created has started with an endeavor to create justice and order and mercy and, and whatever in a society of individuals who don't pay attention to or feel or follow the two great commandments. And in fact, then the evidence of this is that you can literally take any law that's on the books and you can ask yourself, if I truly loved God with all my heart, might, mind, and strength, and if I truly loved my neighbor as much as I love myself, and that was, and those two things worked together to became, that became a filter by which we saw reality. Would we even need to have any laws about stealing? Do I need to have a, a do I need to have a socially enforced rule if my, if I love my neighbor as much as I love myself and vice versa? And the answer is no, we don't. So government becomes the discussion of how we deal with each other, not living those two great commandments. And so how do you truly go about creating order? And, and for me, this is one of the main reasons why governments always fail, no matter what. You know, even my love and respect for the Constitution and everything that the church and the prophets have ever said about it, it is still, you know, it's, it's the famous quote by Lysander Spooner where he says that whether the Constitution be this or that, one thing or another, this much is sure, is it has either been powerless to, pre- to prevent the government that we have today or it has caused it. And so it, it either hasn't prevented it or it's actually allowed it and, pre- and promoted it. So in that way, the Constitution hasn't even really protected it. Now, I, I know the, the arguments back to this has been for the longest time is like, well, it's not the Constitution's fault. It's the people. And that, but that's the point. Yeah, that's not even an argument against the point. That is the point. Right. And in this, we have to it's the it's the eternal paradox of government. It's, you know, in the American institutional system, we have, you know, John Adams saying that the Constitution was made for a moral and a religious people and is unsuitable for any other. And so you can't have a constitutional form of government unless you're moral and unless you have those kinds of uh, sensibilities to where you follow certain virtues. But then we have the Federalist where the Federalist Papers comes out and says, but if all men were angels, there would be no need for government. And so we're in this paradox where if we are the kind of people who can support and perpetuate good government, we don't actually need it at the end. If all men are angels and self-governing. So this is like Joseph Smith's quote, right? I teach them correct principles and they govern themselves. You don't need a lot of overhead government and a lot of regulations if people understand the principle of self-governing. And in this way, I think this is where I see Alma coming to a realization here, because as you were bringing about with Nihor, he brings along this philosophy of, of priestcraft. And priestcraft, I think, is really not very well understood. I think we think we understand it because of Second uh, Nephi 26. Um, in verse 29, it says that God commanded that there should be no priestcraft, for behold, priestcrafts are that men preach and set themselves up for a light unto the world. They might get gain and praise of the world, and they seek not for the welfare of Zion. 
and I think in a lot of ways we, we, I know I heard growing up a lot in Utah, like Deseret book is the, the worst institution of priestcraft in the world, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's just, they're just selling the gospel to make money. I remember feeding into those narratives as a child and, and growing up in, into my first stages of adult development. But now I look back on it and I say, you know what? Priestcraft is really a doctrine that you have to know the heart. You know, the labor is worthy of its hire, but the we can come about and preach the gospel. And it's really the intention that you're trying to get the praise of the world and you're not seeking for the welfare of Zion. And I really think those two elements of what makes priestcraft priestcraft are almost impossible to discern in another. I, I, I think it kind of comes down to a place where you might be able to tell it over a lo- prolonged period of time or if you just come right out and say it. But in this particular way, what I'm what I'm getting at is that I think there's a way to be able to have the supporters of Nihor come out and say, well, you didn't know his heart. You didn't know if he was not seeking for the welfare of Zion. You didn't know if he was going to be out here really seeking for the welfare and he was just setting himself up for a light. Well, sure, the people, the priests need to be supported by the people if they're going to have the time, the means and the energy in going about and preaching the word of God. So it just makes sense that they're that they're, that they're they're taken care of, and so when Nehor is eventually killed, I think verse fifteen is fantastic here, and it says, "And it came to pass that they took him, and his name was Nehor, and they carried him up to the top of a hill, Manti, and there he was caused." Yeah. And I love I love that, I, and I don't know if that is a a place where like Moroni or Mormon is sitting there etching it in and, and, and talking about this and he can't go back and white out what he just wrote. Like he can't scratch out caused <laughs> because he's like, and there he was caused comma, or rather he did acknowledge comma between the heavens and the earth that what he had taught to the people was contrary to the word of God. And there he suffered an ignominious death. And I think that's fascinating that phrase. And there he was caused Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on, hold on. He wasn't caused. Rather, he, he acknowledged, right? Because I think in the social narrative, when you, when you talk about priestcraft and priestcraft has to deal with the heart so much that Alma may have been able to deal with the heart of the matter as the high priest of the church. But as the political ruling body, the secular authority, you really can't tell the, the heart has very little to do with it. You can't really tell that. You know, we talk about intent and the law and that whole thing. But really, it's indiscernible, and it leaves this huge room open for his followers, and I think that becomes the setup for Chapter 2 and the wars that follow. Well, it's exactly, it's a watershed moment. I mean, we see that right here, right after he dies. What's the first sentence? Nevertheless, in verse 16, this did not put an end to the spreading of priestcraft through the land. And it says it didn't put an end to contentions either. In fact... This death of Nehor, which by his followers could be, we could infer as they viewed it as a martyrdom, you know, he becomes sort of this justification for vengeance. We have Amlicai and all the people that follow Amlicai as angry with the government and with the people because of this and they want to set up a king because they do not like how things have gone with Alma. And then you have the people of Ammonihah, which are of the profession of Nehor, and they don't like Alma either. 
And uh, they even are very explicit about that fact. You know, Alma, you're not the chief judge anymore. You don't have any power over us. They're only interested in political power anyway. And we had this discussion. You know, I see this as a watershed moment. And, and Alma, you know, as much as he was really trying honestly to fulfill his obligations, this, this created more problems than it solved. Or maybe create it's not the right word because people need to be responsible for their own actions. But it certainly contributed to more problems. Yeah, it was a, it was it a catalyst. Solutions. Yeah. And so we have this death of Nihor being something that, that really gave some ammunition, so to speak, to the Amlicites and really gave some ammunition to the people of Ammonihah. But on the other hand, it's done something different uh, in the church. Because here we have quite a problem start happening in the church. It says here in verse 21, Now there was a strict law among the people of the church that there should not any man belonging to the church arise and persecute those that did not belong to the church, and that there should be no persecution among themselves. Nevertheless, there were many among them who began to be proud and began to contend warmly with their adversaries. Okay, so who is it talking about here? Who is it that began to be proud? Among who? The members of the church. Okay, so it's nevertheless there were many of the members of the church who began to be proud and began to contend warmly with their adversaries. Who are their adversaries? Well, in this context, they're the people of Nehor or those of the profession of Nehor as the Book of Mormon calls it. So now we had this law in the church that you were not supposed to contend or persecute Though with those that are not members of the church, but the people of the church, they feel like they're in the right because Nehor was a murderer and Alma, who is their righteous chief judge and high priest has put him to death. So the people of the church, they're in the right and they have the upper hand. And what do you do when you have the upper hand? You persecute those who don't. And here we have a problem. And there were many among them who began to be proud and began to contend warmly with their adversaries, even unto blows, yea, they would smite one another with their fists. Now this was in the second year of the reign of Alma, and it was a cause of much affliction to the church, yea, it was a cause of much trial with the church. So not only did this execution of Nehor lead to the problems that we're going to see later with Amlicite and Ammonihah, but it immediately started um, sparking some additional contention in the church because of the pride of the people. They felt like they had the upper hand and they were in the right. And Alma, the high priest, he executed this guy. So we are in the right to use physical violence against them because they are followers of Nehor, who is a murderer, right? So we need to go out and take care of them. Now, Alma obviously doesn't condone this. And he sees this as a big problem. Um, but I don't know if it's until later that he really comes to terms with how his actions um, might have contributed to this. And again, I'm, I'm not trying to judge Alma. Uh, actually, Alma's one of my favorite Book of Mormon characters. Again, going back to where we're trying to get, where we're trying to understand this Book of Mormon narrative, that Alma is sincerely trying to do his best and is failing. But he does change. He looks to Christ 
And he does amazing things in the rest of his life because of what he's learned here. But as Moroni says, let's read into Alma's experience and his life and let's learn to be more wise than he was. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And And I think there's a lot of evidence for what you're talking about, especially with how Mormon is so seamlessly and and you miss it if you're not paying attention but he's so seamlessly going from the secular to the religious and back to the secular back to the religious so he he talks about the nation and its laws and then he goes back and he says but the church and the its laws did this but the nation and its laws did this but you know but the church did this and so he bounces back and forth and you almost miss it if you're not really paying attention but when Alma appeals to the authority of capital punishment to kill Nehor there's no appeal there to divine justice, to some kind of universal morality. There's no explanation or axiom of righteousness. It's only just to adhere to the king's law that the people had agreed to obey. So we agreed to do this, so I guess we've got to do this now. And then it says, but now we're getting over here into the people of the church who they should know better. This is where like, the secular government is there's really no normative you can have nationalistic virtues that you try to get but and try to maintain as an identity to the people but where the true heart and soul of a people come from is in that relationship with with god and then we see the people of god failing and there has to be some kind of answer and solution there and so you can see like you're talking about ben alma having this moment where the political is brand new He's in this brand new situation, brand new secular political problem, but he's also having to think, you know, in this different mindset with his religious. And now he's he's witnessing two different things going on in completely different spheres of his life. And he's got to try to mesh all this together to be able to have it make sense. And then all of a sudden there's this war, right? Because Amlicai comes up as as a follower of Nehor in chapter two. And he's says he's a cunning and he's a wise man in the wisdom of the world. And he was after the order of Nehor. And they ended up having basically he went to try to force an election, a force to have him be the king. He's like and just like you said, there's almost 500 years of having a king. And if you go in, if you're Nehor or I'm sorry, if you're if you're Amlicai as a follower of Nehor, you can then look at, say, you know, Alma, He's this is obviously a failed experiment because we're not even in this a year and Alma's already killing people. He's already off here just trying to kill people to do all to, to just off people out with the according to this law. And yeah, says, who we, don't agree with his religious views. Exactly right. Because obviously, it, you know, that's not what Alma's intent was. But here, again, Alma has given them this ammunition, and they're going to be very persuasive to certain people with this because the facts seem to speak for themselves, right? That's right. And because even Nehor's main crime of enforcing priestcraft with the sword, in other words, of killing Gideon, Gideon was a member of Alma's church. There's obviously a seeming conflict of interest where... Who, who's to say Gideon didn't strike first and that Nehor was just defending himself? Now, obviously, we don't, you know, that's reading into the text and Mormon doesn't get us that way. But in trying to think the way that Amlicite can with the evidence that we do have in the Book of Mormon, we can see that as a follower of Nehor, who's now trying to go back to a monarchy, and obviously Mosiah and his sons don't want to be it, and Alma has failed, and we don't want to be a member of that church. We need to, we need to pull out to have a more of a Nephi 
type government as opposed to this weird amalgamation, this weird connection of the this church over here and you know, the head of the church and the head of our secular government. We just need to have it all over here again just so it's just our, us and our people. And so the voice of the people end up coming against Amalasai, which I think is really fascinating because in verse uh, ch- in chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, it says, And it came to pass that the voice of the people came against Amalasai, that he was not made their king over the people, and this did cause much joy in the hearts of those who were against him. And I think this is a brilliant way of being able to sh- to for Mormon to write this, because as uh, as President Kimball talked, when enemies rise up, we, we turn anti-enemy all the time instead of turning pro-kingdom of God. You know, I'm quoting from uh, his, President Kimball's 1976 talk, The False Gods We Worship, where he says that when whenever we're confronted with an enemy, we turn anti-enemy instead of turning pro-kingdom of God. And this is exactly what the people are doing. They're not voting for a particular form of government. Mentally, they're voting against Amalasai, and they were much enjoyed in their hearts who were against Amalasai. So all of a sudden we start to see that the, even the most basic people who we consider are good are turning rather anti-enemy instead of pro-kingdom of God. I see that fitting into the narrative here. I mean, even starting back in, in chapter 1 at the end where where Mormon tells us that uh, that all of this contention that was happening, was a, he says in verse 25, was a great trial to those who did stand fast in the faith. Nevertheless, they were steadfast and immovable in keeping the commandments of God, and they bore with patience the persecution which was heaped upon them. It says they imparted of their substance, every man according to that which he had, to the poor and the needy and the sick and the afflicted. Um, it says that in their prosperous circumstances, they did not send any away who were naked or hungry or thirst or sick. Um, so there, there is this core of the church, right, that, that really seems to get it. And is really trying to follow the commandments to follow Christ. Um, But you have, again, previous to this, you have this, uh, this part of the membership of the church who are very contentious, who are very antagonistic, and they want to really stick it to the Nehorites, so to speak. And then the Amlicites, they really want to stick it to them because they lost, right? And this sort of adversarial position that these members of the church and other people who maybe weren't members of the church but part of the society are taking is what sparks this war. Yes, Amlicai and his people are wanting power and gain and, and so forth. But you can see that there are ways of diffusing this type of contention and this war that is on the horizon there would be ways of diffusing this, of reconciling with these people and avoiding a war that could have come about if the rest of the people had followed the example of that core membership of the church that really did humble themselves under persecution, really did care for others. But instead, you have the people here who there's a sufficient number of them that really want to just duke it out with the Amlicites and uh, and they get what they want, so to speak, but then they discover later that uh, that that war was much more horrible than they had thought it would be. 
I love that she used that word reconcile because I, I even wrote that into my margins of, of my scriptures right there in verse eight, that this was a lost moment of reconciliation, that to be against is not to be for, and that to be against, you really do lose that moment of unity and forgiveness of reconciliation, that even though we've had disagreements, that anti-enemy approach really does destroy uh, those pure moments of reconciliation. Um, so it was, it was like this horrible lost opportunity. And then they do, they go to war and it becomes the, ver- the, the first that I've been able to recognize the first major civil war in the Nephite civilization to this magnitude. And it was, it was awful. It was absolutely awful. They, they, they ran, uh, they ran to go, uh, track down Amasai and his people. And I, it, it's just bloodshed and carnage all over. So now they're in war. Now, now they're in this place where they're fighting each other and they are a, a conflict that I don't really necessarily know was inevitable. I, I don't know if this this had to be this way. Um, in fact, I was having a co- private conversation on social media this morning where someone asked, is any war inevitable? And I like John Stosinger. I read, you know, he was one of required reading at BYU and know introduction to political science or international political science it was a great class um but that's the first time i read him and i was exposed to him but he goes through and he documents all of the major wars of the last 300 years and he talks about how war is basically the failure of leadership that there is no necessary or inherent war that all war is just basically a breakdown of good leadership and in that, I, I, I think that's absolutely true. I think that this whole war with Amlicite didn't necessarily need to be. And I think one of the evidence for that, Ben, is that you brought up the core membership of the church and who and what they were doing and the goodness about what they were doing. And did, did we respond in an anti-enemy approach where we could have gone to reconciliation? But now we're in war and Mormon is going through and he's He's giving us his overview of what's happened in verse 28 of chapter 2. He says, Nevertheless, the Nephites, being strengthened by the hand of the Lord, having prayed mightily to him that he would deliver them out of his hands of the hands of their enemies, so therefore the Lord did hear their cries and did strengthen them, and the Lamanites and the Amlicites did fall before them. Because now we have the Amlicites who've gone out to combined forces with the with the the Lamanites. And so now it's a really big force that the Nephites are contending against, not just their own faction of their own people, but now this is poured out into, into the Lamanite problem now. So now it's combined forces against him. And it's just, I, I want to know what prayer, what prayer they prayed. I, you know, Mormon tells us that they were strengthened. I want to know what the, the actual historical record says. This is an overview. This is a synopsis for Mormon. But then we get into verse 30 where Alma as the as not as the high priest of the church, but as the chief judge, now is out leading the army. He's out fighting the army. And the armies of the Lamanites and the Amlicites are so large, it says it was like the sands of the sea. So I don't know in how all of that, that Alma ended up contending with Amlici. <laughs> I don't know how they found each other. Hmm. And they started well, fighting. Well, you've seen all the movies, right? You know, they just... <laughs> They just throw all the little guys out of their way and they march towards each other and have it out, right? That's how all the movies have it. So. Well, that's how the movie, that's how I imagine it in my head, right? <laughs> but the actual logistics, I have no idea how this happens, but then um, th- this is just, this story has always fascinated me because it says, and Alma being a man of God, this is in uh, chapter two, verse 30, 
Alma, being a man of God, being exercised with much faith, cried saying, now, Mormon, I think Mormon's reading a little bit more into this than maybe was actually there. But I, I am, I'm perfectly happy with verse 30. But I also have stories into every, every single battle has story after story of story of soldiers and of people in the middle of war making deals with God. Where people are like, save yeah, me from this. Prayer. The foxhole prayer, right? Save me from this and I will serve you for the rest of my life. Save me from this and I will never be a bad person again. Save me from this. And so it's this, we're making deals with God, right? We're in a, we're in a moment of fear and panic. And all of a sudden the transactional God, we're praying that the transactional God is really loving us right now because it's like, if I make a good enough deal right here, right now, then, you know, maybe God will save me over the, over my enemy. But whatever. But he, oh Lord, have mercy and spare my life that I might be an instrument in the hands and preserve this people. Now, it's not Alma's intent that I really want to critique, although I, I think there's a room for critique there. But it's the type of prayer. Lord, have mercy and spare my life that I might be an instrument in thy hands and save and preserve this people. As covenant. That's Alma's. Covenant. And what I think is really important with that, and Ben, you've talked about this quite a bit. You've, you've hinted on this because I know we're getting to chapter four, but you've hinted on it, is that how the Lord calls Alma to fulfill this promise. To, to spare his life, to be an instrument in the hands and to preserve this people. How is the Lord going to have Alma do that? And what recognition is Alma going to have now? So then in that moment, and Alma said these words, he contended again with Amlesai which gives us reason to think that, you know, they battled with each other and then possibly from exhaustion, they, they step back as, as I've heard, I'm not, I'm not a war expert, but I've heard in moments of these kinds of hand to hand combats, you could fight for a while, step back, rest for a minute, then go at it again. But he contends again with Amlesai and he was strengthened in as much that he slew Amlesai with the sword. So now Alma is personally responsible as it were for now, Nehor and Amlesai's death, the two leaders of opposition to this government. That that leads to quite a few things. So uh, the king of the Lamanites, he flees. Um, Alma's bodyguards battle with the king's bodyguards. And then they come back and the carnage is so bad, they don't even bother to count the dead bodies. Um, and not only that, but now the physical layout of the land is there's been such a massive number of soldiers that farms and fields have been trampled over. Men, women, and children have been destroyed. Uh, it's, it's carnage across the board. Nobody was, it doesn't look like anybody was spared. It doesn't look like this was a, a war of, you know, lines line up here and lines line up here and you, you know, like the whole Western just war theory, you only kill those who are in war. It looks like there's a lot of innocent bystanders going on. And you know, that's talking, just sad. Yeah. You were talking about whether war or any given war is inevitable or not. And, and obviously depends on the perspective, you know, I, it, the question is how much influence does a single person have or can a single person have? And, um, I look at this story and I say, okay, at, at what point was sort of the point of no return for Alma? At what point could he personally have done something that, might have been able to diffuse this situation to de-escalate, right? And um, I'm not sure exactly what that is. You know, you can point to things along the way that definitely contributed to it. 
But obviously by the time all of his people are armed and all the Amlicites are armed and they start marching out to battle, uh, the time for reconciliation seems to be past. I mean, maybe somebody could do something by then. You you meet with the leader and you say, hey, I've, I've got an idea. How can we get this resolved? Let's do this and that. But the people are already prepped and angry and they've said their war prayer, right? And um, they're ready to kill each other. And uh, you, you really have to, to do that before that. And it, this, this makes me think of a lot of the um, – sort of the points that are brought up when you talk about the the way trying to establish peace or, or um, a pattern of nonviolence and, um, and the typical response is something like, well, what if you, you know, walk in and your family's all being murdered? And, and um, it's like this in medias rest thing, right? Like, well, hold up. What happened before that? <laughs> you know, like, can we step back a minute? Let, let's get a bigger view of this. And and sometimes when you talk about war, uh, you say, well, they were the Amlicites were coming to destroy them. So what were they supposed to do? I was like, well, the story didn't start there, right? The story started before that. There was a lot more going on. And so again, to the point of whether a war is inevitable or not, it really just depends on your perspective and um, uh, what, as an individual, you you can do and um this is this is sort of the story that mormon writes from alma's perspective and uh it's hard to point at where alma might have made a difference um but certainly at this point it's it's a little bit late in the game uh to be able to change that so we see that the the nephites pursue them verse 36 uh, they fled before the Nephites toward the wilderness, which was west and north, away beyond the borders of the land. And the Nephites did pursue them with their might and did slay them. This kind of makes me concerned about, again, the mental state of the Nephites right now. Um, why are they, if they're running away, why are they pursuing him and slaying them more? You know, what? there, there seems to be uh, a little bit of bloodthirstiness here on the part of the Nephites. Um, we then have in the next chapter another war because the Lamanites come back. What is it about this one that might have led to um, further contention between the, the Lamanites and the Nephites? Um, not sure, but uh, we can definitely point to various po uh, spots in here where the Nephites um, acted against what they had the light and knowledge to do and it led to some some horrific things it's true you know we often see that the nephites are the righteous people that are preserved by the hand of god in their righteousness and who are defending themselves against you know these wicked amlicites and and while there's layers of truth to all of this and you know after all the the lord had delivered alma and the nephites when they had prayed for deliverance there's i, I think there's still another layer of analysis that goes here that's often ignored and and what that is is that it, it's the knowledge and the custom of the Nephites that war was the judgment of God sent upon them in their wickedness to stir them up in remembrance of God's mercy and justice. Uh, so this war then becomes no different. So the, the greatness of the loss that was caused by the Nephites and the Amlicites, they all had a, it said it says they all had a reason to mourn. There wasn't a man, woman, and child who hadn't lost something. Everybody, every single soul had a cause to mourn. And in Alma 4.2, it says, But the people were afflicted, yea, greatly afflicted for the loss of their brethren, 
and also for the loss of their flocks and their herds and the loss of their fields and their grain, which were trodden down underfoot and destroyed by the Lamanites. So that this war had caused near immeasurable amounts of suffering and pain, and the Nephites, even after the war, they had felt the consequences of the loss, so much to the point that they considered it just this incredibly major affliction. And it says in verse 3, And so great were their afflictions that every soul had caused to mourn, every soul. And they believed that it was the judgments of God sent upon them in their wickedness and their abominations, therefore they were awakened to a remembrance of their duty. So I think here's here's kind of the rub. Every single person among the Nephites, Alma included, had caused to mourn. So they did mourn. It's not like a real sadness. This is like, it's not like a, I was inconvenienced or I was, I'm just sad. I mean, it, they've literally lost. A- everyone has lost something. And this really, they brought it back to their own wickedness. And so in their mourning, they realized that in their wickedness, they'd really brought this state of violence upon themselves. So in this type of way of thinking, he, I, I love this quote by Hugh Nibley, where he once observed that it's always been the wicked versus the wicked in the Book of Mormon. It's never the righteous against the wicked. And I th- that that's a powerful statement. That's a really powerful statement that, that Nibley's making, and he's really got to do a good job to back this up. But he, uh, he goes on, he says, in the duel between Alma, Alma and Amlesi, wasn't that the good guy versus the bad guy? No. When the war was over, everyone had caused to mourn terribly because they were convinced that the war had been created because of their wickedness. They had brought it upon themselves. They weren't fighting as bad guys versus good guys after all. And in the same way, Mormon then counsels us, don't worry, counsels us, don't worry about the wicked. Surely the judgments of God will overtake the wicked because it is by the wicked that the wicked are punished. Now, this opens up a can of worms to talk about Alma as the leader of the church and everything of being wicked in this sense that he had been led into war himself. Now, this is where we've got to try to make sense of a few things. We've already talked that Alma is in a state of learning. Alma is an incredible man. He's the, he's the chief judge of the, of the land. He's also the high priest of the church. Alma is still learning and mid battle he's making he's making that you know foxhole covenants and promises with God but it's what Alma chooses to do from this point on that really establishes the the true character and nature of Alma because what happens is after verse 4 comes or chapter 4 comes along and talks about this incredible sorrow the people especially of the church they turn right back over in the next year or two and they start repeating the exact same patterns that had led them into the war to begin with. They were becoming too prideful. They were becoming the inequality of the people. They were not bearing patiently any suffering or persecutions that they had from other, from, from others. And it's this kind of non-reconciliation mindset and heart that led them into the first war that starts to actually bring them into another war. And that's when Alma's like, wow, something else has to be. He's Alma then with these new eyes starts to see what's going on. Now he's confronted with a, with a completely different situation that he has to deal with. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the points that Nibley makes in that context is that the definition of the wicked and the righteous are the wicked are those who won't or refuse to repent. And the righteous are those who are repenting. So it doesn't have anything to do like necessarily with where you are. It's what direction you're going in. And Alma, as we see here, he is willing 
and humble and prepared to repent. Um, but we see the general membership of the church or a huge part of the membership of the church is not. And in fact, it's a, this is a very interesting um, section here where it goes on about the wickedness in the church. And it says in verse 9, there were envyings and strife and malice and persecutions and pride, even to exceed the pride of those who did not belong to the church of God. And thus ended the eighth year, the reign of the judges, and the wickedness of the church was a great stumbling block to those who did not belong to the church. And thus the church began to fail in its progress. You know, uh, this might be a difficult thing to sort of hear and, and internalize that at least at this point in the Nephite history, the church, the church of God, the people who were supposed to have taken upon themselves the name of Jesus Christ were more wicked than the people who didn't. You know, and just think about that for a second. <laughs> you know, that that can happen. That can happen. Even with someone as righteous and humble and capable spiritually as Alma was, the general membership of the church can be more wicked or a huge part of membership of the church can be more wicked than those who don't belong to the church. How does that happen? How does this happen? I, I trace this back to what we were talking about with Amlicai. The people felt that they were in the right. They felt violence was justified. They felt persecution was justified because their faith had been attacked. Gideon had been attacked. And so they felt this vent. Uh, revenge and retribution needed to be made and here we have them because of this long war it had hardened their hearts and here they are at their their wickedness and pride again and uh yeah like you were saying alma just is like oh we're back at square one so um this chief judge thing isn't quite working out like i hoped uh we need to do something different yeah, so here we have Alma again wearing two hats. He has two options. He's got he's got the political in one hand and he's got the religious in another. And he's starting to see that there is great social inequality. And the church by and large is not doing what it's not pulling its own weight and is becoming actually more of a stumbling block than a, than a help. And whereas the secular will never truly have any real fundamental experiential normative ethics it's it's always borrowed from something else and in the american context it's been borrowed from confiscated might be a better word from christianity to make the the national morality but in this way you see alma actually pinpointing the problem and in this it says that and now it came to pass and this is in chapter 4 verse 15 and it came to pass that alma having seen the afflictions of the humble followers of god and the persecutions which were heaped upon them by the remainder of the people, and seeing all of their inequality, he began to be very sorrowful. And I love this. Nevertheless, the Spirit of the Lord did not fail him. See, even in all of this, even if what we're saying about Alma is true, and this is and this is kind of Alma's coming about moment, the Spirit has never failed Alma. It's Alma's intentionality, his direction, like you said, Ben, that is really bringing the spirit and is keeping that himself open to the spirit. So therefore Alma selected a wise man who was among the elders of the church and he gave him power 
according to the voice of the people, that he might have power to enact laws according to the laws which had been given and put in force, according to the wickedness and the crimes of the people. Now this man's name was Nephiha, and he was then appointed as the chief judge, and he sat in the judgment seat to judge and to govern the people. And now Alma did not grant him to basically Nephiha to be the high priest over the church, but he retained the office of high priest unto himself, but he delivered the judgment seat over unto Nephiha. Wow. Just wow. Alma is in, he has two entire, he has the power of two institutions. And I, I think I, we, we don't have the time to get into it, but I, I can't help but think of Jesus's temptations there with Satan and Satan showing him the, the immensity or the, the immensity of the powers and the kingdoms of the earth. All of these things are yours. Satan tells Jesus, if you will worship me, I will give you the power of all the government to enact goodness, to, to do whatever you want to do. I'll give you power over all of it. Whatever you are is the Messiah. Look at this. If I give you the power of the political, here it is. I'll give it all to you. Just worship me. And yet Christ's kingdom has nothing to do with this. And so Alma then gives up the political, refocuses his attention onto his high priest position, and then verse 19. And this he did, that he himself might go out among his people or among the people of Nephi, that he might preach the word of God unto them to stir them up in remembrance of their duty, that he might pull down by the word of God all the pride and the craftiness and all the contentions which were among the people, seeing no way that he might reclaim them, save it were by bearing down in pure testimony against them. It's not that there was a good way. It's not that this was a decent way. It's not that this was a, a better alternative. Alma literally has weighed the balance. He's weighed the two things in, in both hands. And he's like, there's literally no other way. He's got no other way. And so he goes out and he becomes a missionary. But even when he comes back out for his second missionary experience in chapter 31, you know, when he gets that really big missionary team together, like the best missionary team that's ever been put together, and they go back out and they go talk to the Zoramites. Alma then says, and now the preaching of the word of God had a great tendency to lead the people to that which was just. Yea, it had more powerful effect on the minds of the people than even the sword or anything else which had happened unto them. Therefore, Alma thought it was expedient that they should try the virtue of the word of God. And it just, this is just, it's, it's so incredible that the the actual power of the word of God and the preaching of the word of God had a more powerful effect to change the course of civilizations and societies than what was enacted in whatever their halls of Congress were, you know, in his equivalency. He gives up the political altogether. He doubles down on the spirit and he goes out to be a missionary. You know, and and his statement there that it was, was more powerful is, is an interesting one because there's certainly circumstances and stories we can get into in the following chapters where it would appear that that's not true, right? Because we see him going to Ammonihah and teaching the word, but what ends up happening is that a majority of the people don't listen and they they mass murder women and children and, and then they're mass murdered by the Lamanites who are coming because Ammon and his brethren had preached, preached the gospel among the Lamanites and so it had stirred up apparently had stirred up all this contention, right, against the word. But this kind of ties in back to the point of war being inevitable. You know, 
it may not be inevitable at a societal level because of what people in general have chosen, but war is certainly not inevitable for you as an individual, for me as an individual. We can choose peace regardless of our surrounding circumstances. We can choose to follow Christ. We can, as Jacob says, take up our cross and follow Christ regardless of what's going on around us. And to the example that we have a couple times in these chapters here of the actual core membership of the church submitting humbly to persecutions and regardless of their their circumstances of poverty or even of abundance, not turning anyone away, but helping and blessing others and ministering to them. And again, actually taking upon themselves the name of Christ. This is, I think, what Christ is calling us to, regardless of what the overall political circumstances that seem to be completely out of our control or wars that seem to be inevitable or or circumstances that we simply have no say over. We are subject to the powers that be, so to speak, but Christ calls us to be subject to him and it's a different type of mentality and it's a different type of lifestyle when we choose Christ. No longer are those sort of political difficulties or situations of fear or violence or oppression, they aren't they don't have the same relevance in the context of being a disciple of Christ as they do in just living in the world without Christ. Yeah, I love that. It reminds me then also of that that coming to those two great commandments of loving God with all of our heart, might, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Because we know what Alma is going to go out and start to preach. And there are so many places where we can take those two great commandments and just see that that's exactly what Alma is going to go out to do. And to show the people that, listen, this political solution that we've got, I was there. I was in it. I fought in it. I was at the top. I could see exactly what we were capable of, of solving and doing with that. And maybe there is even a time and a place for this, but that's not where the real fundamental solutions are going to come from. The real fundamental solutions, the things that will are really going to heal our country, the things that are really going to make sure that contention doesn't exist. The things that are going to really make sure that we can be a just and a holy and a good people are not going to come from that institution that we created with all of those prescriptive laws from our King. It's going to come down when we come to the crossroads of the two great commandments. Will we truly love God with all of our heart, might, mind, and strength, trusting in him and putting our entire worldview into that love of God and that we truly love our neighbor as much as ourselves? Because almost every law that I've ever been able to analyze, I can't even think of it a single exception, has been created in the fear of what our neighbor can do to us. And we learn from the, from, uh, from the New Testament that the absence of love is not hate, it's fear. From 1 John chapter 4, that where there is no love, hate is not the issue, it's fear. Fear is in the absence of love. So that when we don't love our neighbor, we fear them. And it's in that fear that we seek to regulate them. We seek to 
license them. We seek to control them. We seek to bind them by threat of coercion and force of the law. And Alma sees this and he's like, there's, there, there's a better way. And that's what I love about the rest of Alma. And, and that's really where I love to contextualize the war chapters towards the end of the book of Alma is in this narrative. It's in this narrative that there are two solutions, the political and the religious. And the Book of Mormon gives equal weight to both of them, even in good people fighting in the secular and what the missionaries are truly doing. And the Book of Mormon is this narrative that comes about saying, listen, I'm going to present to you these two narratives and of the best of the best in the secular form and what they were able to achieve and what the priesthood and what the the missionaries and what the spirit of God can do in his narrative and what that can achieve. And then you choose which one you think is going to be the best and has the greatest results. And in that, I think the Book of Mormon is an absolutely f- fantastic document to be able to show that. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, seeing those parallel narratives and uh, choosy this day whom you will serve, right? And yeah. render unto Caesar or render unto God. And uh, that that is an interesting way of, of viewing the Book of Mormon narrative, narrative as well that I'll have to explore a little bit. Um, I, I've said all I want on this topic so far, I think. So well, good. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. Well, thank, thank you everybody for, for being here with us. And if you've listened to us thus far, thank you so much. And, uh, we look forward to being with you next week. We are going to be going over Alma five through seven, and I don't know how we're going to get through Alma five in one week, let alone chapter six and seven, but Alma five is just, oh my goodness, Alma five. So we're going to be excited about it. Thank you for t- turning in. Thank you for listening and we will see you guys next week. 